we, uh, I think, covered the first part of Acts chapter 9 last week. Um, so we're going to keep uh, pushing through this very important history book of the New Testament church. And uh, this is a, a wonderful study, and, and there certainly are uh, cautions that we want to have as we look at the book of Acts. Remember, we're, we're looking at a time of transition. Um, those of you who have taken uh, the book of Acts in our GLBI, uh, in a GLBI setting, you recognize these two words, the words prescriptive and descriptive. And we sort of use that verbiage uh, to help us understand some, some fundamental cautions as we walk into a book. Um, a lot, much of the Old Testament, there's truth that's being described for us. And it doesn't mean necessarily that it's prescribing it for our action in the church. And uh, so we are, are cautious hermeneutically, and we understand that there is a difference between the nation of Israel and the local New Testament church. And we make that distinction. Um, the book of Acts is a book that uh, is more descriptive than it is for us prescribing things. Uh, it's, a, it's a history book, and again, talking about the transition of how we go from uh, Jew and synagogues, right? That's what we had when Jesus walked the face of this earth under an Old Testament economy, how we went from Jew and synagogue to Gentiles in the local New Testament church. I mean, that's quite a, you know, quite a, a switcheroo there. And the book of Acts tells us how that happens. And really, Acts chapter 9 and verses uh, 32 through chapter 10 is really the, 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 the critical text that talks about the turning of the corner. And, um, uh, and uh, we're going to see that here hopefully tonight and, and still make some application that is relevant for us in the local New Testament church. Um, so we'll be looking tonight, uh, we're not going to read it all, but we're going to look at a portion of scripture, uh, Acts chapter 9, like I said, from verse 32 through chapter 2, verse 22. Now that doesn't necessarily end uh, the Cornelius discussion, uh, this military Gentile who becomes really the first Gentile or convert uh, of the New Testament local church era, I would argue. He's... Uh, we often use this verse when we're ministering to military, uh, military people who perhaps some churches say that God hates you. You know, there, there are churches out there that proclaim that God hates the military, right? Well, here, uh, God births the church through a, a military man and a Gentile. He is sort of our forefather. So we're looking at our sort of our George Washington tonight, and I hope you appreciate him and you... Uh, See great significance in identifying with him. So we're going to look at sort of a larger passage. We won't necessarily read every verse here, uh, but we're just going to make some observations uh, that are pertinent for us. Uh, let's bow for a word of prayer as we ask the Lord for help tonight. Father, we thank you for uh, our history as a church. Uh, we see it as being comparatively simple, and we thank you for that. And we take great delight in living in this era of salvation history. We thank you that 
we are not Old Testament Israel, that we are not uh, the prophets. We are not those who are, are, are bound apart from really the written word of God. Uh, we have so much that we enjoy specifically because the historic Jesus of Nazareth has come and he has fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And he demonstrated and he continues to demonstrate that he is the very Son of God. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that he is the very centerpiece uh, of our understanding. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you. We love you. We pray that as we seek to make much of you tonight, that our hearts would be encouraged and strengthened in Jesus' name. Amen. So as the history of the early New Testament church unfolds, we come to a crucial point in Acts with these words in verse 32. Now it came about that as Peter was traveling through all those parts. So, so this is you just in your mind want to hear now Peter, you kind of want to underline those in your Bible because this is a critical, critical point in the history of the church. Chapters 9 and 10 is a continued fulfillment, I would argue, of a promise that Jesus made all the way back in Matthew chapter 16 to this key figure uh, of the apostolic band. Now there Jesus said to Peter, Peter... Upon you I am going to build my church, uh, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And certainly there's all kinds of uh, interpretations given to what exactly Jesus is saying there, and a lot of those interpretations are often driven by uh, our Catholic friends who argue for papal infallibility based on sort of an apostolic succession in the office of the apostle, um, and, and therefore, we get a little uneasy when Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, upon this rock, I'll build my church. There's a, there's a play on words going on there, too. Sometimes we make uh, interpretive uh, 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 decisions based on little rock and stone and things like that. But I, I think uh, we are best just to simply take this as Jesus speaking directly to Peter. And because Peter is the first among the apostles called... If you look back in Matthew, he's also the spokesman, I believe, in Matthew chapter 16 for the apostolic band. In other words, uh, Jesus is not just focusing on Peter's profession of faith, although it's very significant, uh, but Peter is speaking for the rest of the apostles. Uh, and uh, uh, so I believe that it's just simple, simplest, the natural reading of the text, to take Peter as that rock. Um, He's the spokesman, we've said that already, for the rest of the apostolic band as the recipients of revelation that Jesus of Nazareth, and this is important, I think we, we, this is, gets lost on us, but it's this historic figure, Jesus, born of the carpenter Joseph, this historic figure, Jesus of Nazareth, is in fact the very Son of God. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, flesh and blood does not reveal this truth. In other words, there's no way humanly possible that you just dream that up on your own. No, the Spirit of God must do that. 
so this whole idea of supernatural revelation coming through the apostles to the church is the authority upon which the binding and the loosing and ultimately the keys are understood. And it's really revelation. It's revelation that first of all is settled in heaven and then communicated to the apostles. And then in Matthew chapter 18, the church participates as she understands that revelation. She literally brings people before the church and disciplines them. And in a sense, binding and loosing. And when they come back, uh, they're restored. Uh, so so uh, this is um, the church in her prophetic understanding back in Matthew 16. Uh, if you have any other questions about that, you can ask Pastor Hobbes. He's here. He's a great dispensationalist, and uh, he'll help you understand that. Um, I'm also open for questions on that as well. Uh, but Peter, um, Peter specifically demonstrates the binding and the loosing with Ananias and Sapphira. Remember in Acts chapter 5? Uh, and what is he doing? He, he's not sort of magically dreaming this up. Uh, but he has special revelation from the Holy Spirit that Ananias is lying. And uh, so that's already settled in heaven. And so he proclaims that. And uh, Ananias and Sapphira are both judged very severely. He, he uh, does it again with Simon of Magus, Magnus, uh, who wanted to purchase uh, the ability to, to do what the apostles were doing. And, and, uh, and, and again... He has revelation from heaven that this guy's not right. And so he speaks. And so when uh, Peter is functioning in his office as apostle, yeah, he enjoys revelation. Eventually, they write down a lot of that revelation for you and for, for me. And so as a church, we enjoy that access to truth, that access to divine revelation. And uh, we can be just as firmly grounded upon it, and just as firmly insistent about it as Peter was uh, when he was talking to Ananias and Sapphira about how bad it is to lie to the Holy Spirit. Uh, we can be just as forthright and just as firm. Now, thankfully, people probably won't pass out in front of us. We're glad for that. I do believe that that's a more of an early church thing. Uh, but with that, with, when we stand on Revelation, friends, we stand in the long line of being that rock, that, that profession, that revelation, uh, that Jesus Christ is, in fact, uh, the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord of heaven. Yeah, thank you for an amen. I needed that. I was a little, you guys look a little perplexed about that. I know there's a lot of different views, perhaps, on that. Um, talk about the keys a little bit. Uh, we know that these keys are in the apostles' hands, and then again in Revelation, whose hands are they in? The resurrected Lord, right? So uh, remember the apostles stand uh, as a one-for-one. One. When they stand in their apostolic ministry, they're a one-for-one one, uh, authority, and they had those keys. We don't have the gift of apostle anymore. Uh, look at Acts chapter 1. There's some very clear criteria. Uh, there is no apostolic office that is in any way, shape, or form enjoying sort of a successional uh, revitalization in our era. We don't have that gift anymore. Uh, we've got other gifts, uh, but we do have the revelation that the apostles left us. And we, it is a more sure 
word, right? Amen. Amen. And uh, we can be just as forthright. And uh, so that's a little bit of the backdrop of, I think, of what's going on here in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 and following. Um, so it is through Peter that Jesus opens the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, and in that sense, he's ushering in what I would call a, a new era of salvation history. Okay, now, uh, that's a word that you may not understand or, or get. Uh, uh, don't overthink it. Uh, all uh, that I'm trying to say is that because Jesus, God came in human flesh, and there was a historic figure who walked this earth, who in fact is the divine Son of God and fulfilled all of the messianic promises, that we have a name that goes with the title Messiah, that we know him by name. And he died, was buried, and rose again from the dead. That, that Jesus' historic coming, the very Son of God in human flesh, his coming literally just broke loose salvation, salvation history. Um, on Memorial Day uh, weekend, we observed that and from John 15. Let's go there. We, I think this is probably the best statement of it, and uh, maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't when I preached, uh, but John 15, um, where, where Jesus talks about, uh, he says, uh, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you, right? And then he says in verse 13, greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Obviously, Memorial Day weekend, we're always impressed with the idea that a man lays down his life, right? But that's not why Jesus implored this statement. What he's interested in is lays down his life for his friends. That's what he's interested in. Because he's going to lay his life down for the world and efficiently for those of us who would believe. And it says here... No longer do I call you slaves, for slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you what? Friends. We have this new reality in this era of salvation history. And we put it, put it very simply this way, that comparatively, comparatively to our Old Testament counterparts, we know everything. That's where you say amen. amen. Thank you, Rick. Yeah, Rick's always ready. I mean, I know he's thinking about it. I mean, this is the point. That because of the coming of Jesus, within the question of, of salvation, of lost men and women, comparatively, we know everything. We know absolutely everything. We know the who, what, where, when, why, and how. And we also know how it's all going to end up. Amen. Right? Isn't that amazing? So what Peter is doing now is historically God is going to do something. God is going to come to this, the hinge, I call it a hinge, think of a door, okay? Uh, on one side of that door is our Old Testament counterparts. Are you with me? And on the hinge of, of Acts chapter 9 and 10, on that hinge, it's now going to open up. And it's going to open up in a, in a wonderful way. And it's really the, the question of uh, fellowship, uh, the glory of God in fellowship, and uh, we're going to see him uh, do something amazing. So first of all, tonight, in this new era of salvation history, 
I want us to see that the understanding of the nature of saving faith is greatly enhanced. The understanding of the nature of saving faith is greatly enhanced. Now we have this first little section, verse 32 through 35 of chapter 9, and, and we meet Aeneas. Um, now as it was, Peter was traveling through all those parts. He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, and there he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, this is significant, Jesus. And what's Aeneas thinking right off the bat? What is normal people who saw Jesus? What happened to Jesus? He's no longer around. Okay. And Peter's obviously saying, oh, yes, he is. <laughs> and, uh, and to prove it, we're going to let Jesus prove it. And we'll see that here in a minute. So this Jesus, who, by the way, is the who? He's, he's, he's everything that the Old Testament prophesied concerning the Messiah. This is huge. This is defining of the era that you and I have been living in and probably are taking a bit for granted. And I want to stir your heart about that tonight. So this Jesus, who isn't really dead, he, he's alive, and upon, or, or, or in his power, um, arise, or Jesus Christ heals you, arise and make your bed, and immediately he rose, and all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned, turned to the Lord. So, so we want to keep these phrases uh, a little bit. Um, so the first thing we see about uh, the enhancement of the nature of saving faith is it is faith in an actual historic figure. Remember, our Old Testament counterparts did not have that. They were looking forward to somebody who was yet to be born. They had no clue of what his name particularly would be, of exactly who his parentage would be. But you and I have all of that and so much more. So we, a historic figure. He is a human being that can be referenced historically. Jesus Christ heals you. Oh, by the way, he is still alive. He is still active. He is raised again from the dead. His influence did not cease like every other single human being's influence does at death, but his is only enhanced Amen. through the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily from the dead. He is not dead. He is alive. He is God. This historic figure, this guy who looked much like you and I, he is 100% human, yes, but he is 100% divine. He is going to immediately, without him even being physically present, upon the calling of his name, his power is going to be demonstrated. He is God. He has the power to create. He has the power over the auspices of death in the life of Aeneas. The auspices of death often manifest itself in sickness, in suffering, 
Yes, death, we still live under its auspices, but there are times when Jesus punctuates in power and he blows through it. And here's one of those examples. And it's amazing. It's amazing. Folks, historic Jesus of Nazareth is the centerpiece in this era. He is knowable. He is completely understandable. You can read his very words. And oh, my friends, how critical it is. Not so much that you know Jesus, but that Jesus knows you. His terms are clearly laid out. He has spoken. He is the very logos of God, the eternal word of God. He is the height of divine revelation come in human flesh. He is a one-for-one one vehicle. He is a perfect equivalence of all that God is. All of it. All of it. We are not reliant upon prophets, upon figures. We have those. We're thankful for those. But we have so much more. We have Jesus. Amen. We have Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. He is not merely a model or an example. He is the very object of who we worship, all that he is. We recognize in Matthew chapter 16 again that it takes supernatural help to understand that this is in fact who Jesus is. This is the miracle of salvation. The Spirit of God must awaken the heart of an individual. Ephesians 2 says, We are dead in trespasses and in sin. But then it goes on to say, But God, being rich in mercy, right? But God, the gift of faith, takes, requires supernatural help. John chapter 3, verse 18 says this that he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. Unbelief is what seals men and women in faith, in the fate of eternal damnation and judgment. It's the sin of unbelief. 1 John chapter 4, 15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, true saving faith uh, loves to confess and agree that Jesus is in fact everything that he says he is. God abides in him, and he abides, therefore, in God. 2 John chapter 7, it, it warns us. He says, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in, and here it is, the flesh. It's such a critical, critical doctrinal reality. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves. Watch yourself. Yourself. Don't watch me. You watch yourself. You watch yourself that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, the teaching, abide in the teaching. Why is a disciple-making culture so critical? Jesus is going to expect each and every one of you to not only know his teaching, but to abide in it. Amen. This is Matthew 28. You've got to abide in it. You've got to go way deep down inside of it with the goal of making it all that you are progressively. Does not, uh, it does not, if you don't abide in the teaching of Christ, you do not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. 
anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For every one of you who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So we have this enhancement in the nature of saving faith. It is a, it is a well-informed faith concerning the person of Jesus Christ, that he is the God-man. We also see here that to appropriately respond, that there must be a turning to, which assumes the reality that you're turning away from something. This is it. This is reality. In other words, there is no sort of innocent neutrality in saving faith. You know, there, there are not people who are just agnostic, who just are sort of innocently just don't know. No. The Bible says that true saving faith is a turning to. Turning to who? Who? Jesus. Oh, what does it say? There you go, Rick. It's the Lord. Okay, so this is an altogether different reality. This is an issue of authority. Ah, we learned something again. That it's a turning away from whose authority? Well, you fill in the blank. There, there, there's a variegated number of authorities out there, primarily your own. But if you're going to appropriate true saving faith, the Lord Jesus Christ on his terms, as his power is manifest, it's an, it's an issue of authority, and you're going to turn. You're going to turn to the Lord, to a new authority, and you're going to embrace that in your life. This is the enhanced understanding of saving faith. So, friends, what can Bible-believing people expect of one another as they accurately communicate a truth from the Word of God, from the lips of Jesus, from His authority? What can I, based on the Word of God, assume that will eventually happen in your life? You are going to what? Eventually... Progressively, because you have turned from whatever to the Lord as your authority in this supernatural transaction, you will eventually obey. And I love that. I love counseling people in saving faith, those who are born again. I love that. Regardless of how awful things may be. If you're truly born again, it's not complex. It's just not. You will, in time, you know, you work it out. What does Philippians 2 tell you to do? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Folks, let me tell you, the worst thing, well, there's a lot of bad things. One of the worst things is, is walking in the valley in the shadow of death. I know I, I speak this way, uh, and it's hard to really apprehend it because we don't think this way, but this is how God thinks. Walking in the valley in the shadow of death with no assurance, you know, with a life lived for self, with maybe a mere profession of faith when there has been no real possession of it. There's no fruit in your life. You know, that's something we ought to be concerned about. We certainly don't broker an eternal security. That's between you and the Lord. 
Nobody has the ability to say you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out in any definitive way. We broker in the questions of assurance. In other words, if somebody in a high-handed fashion continues to clearly disobey what God's word tells them to do, as a pastor, as a counselor, as a discipler, I can say, look, hey, you know, if this persists in your life and you just keep digging your heels down on this matter, and if I'm correct and what I'm saying is true from God's word, my friend, you should have no assurance in this area of your life that Jesus knows you. And that's a scary thing, you know? One of the reasons why we uh, participate in church discipline is we turn our, our professing brothers and sisters over to the sphere of the world, Satan himself. And there's no comfort there. And there's nobody there reminding them about what is true from God's word. And, and people who aren't truly born again and are removed in that way, they kind of, you know, they, they sort of like that fish that you catch and you throw back in the water and they swim happily away. <laughs> you know, they're finally out of this crazy place called the church. You know? But others, um, a good friend of mine, I remember, who was disciplined out of the church. Um, I remember after a, another evening of all that he normally did on Friday and Saturday nights, going to breakfast in the morning, and uh, for the first time, he couldn't remember what it was to be saved. And God, it scared him to death. And he ran back to the church. You know, that's, that's, you know, that's what it's all about. That's life out there. Uh, because eternity is a long time. Um, so he turned. There's also a seeing here. Uh, 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 and all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him. There, there's a seeing now. Uh, belief is a result of seeing the power of Jesus in the life of another. I think that's true. By this, men shall all, by this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Right? Uh, a pastor testified about Jason, who enjoyed the love that you displayed at the picnic. And literally, he came to the table with 